0: to Lower life and culture with betsy kim on WNHHLP 103.5 fm your home for community radio
1: thank you harry drose and paul bass i'm betsy kim and i'm delighted to have on our program the new haven diaspora people from the art world of new haven now in new york Now, Helen Cowder is known in New Haven for building up art space, making its mark as a thought-provoking, innovative gallery in New Haven. This included co-founding the Citywide Open Studios, a festival which installs art in spaces throughout the city. In June 2010, Paul Bass in the New Haven Independent wrote, Helen changed the way people thought about and participated in art. She was ArtSpace's executive director when it really stepped onto the national stage with coverage in outlets such as the New York Times, the New Yorker and Art Forum. For one of the remarkable exhibits at ArtSpace, Helen credits Sarah Fritchie for identifying the work of hopefully one of our guests who we're hoping will join us later in the program, photographer and visual artist, Nona Faustine. And Helen connected schools and young people in a summer apprenticeship program led by Nona. And this kind of visual education connects us to another New Haven alum, our guest, Sarah Levinson. Formerly, Syra worked at the Yale Center for British Art as a curator of education and academic outreach. She's now deputy director and director of the education and public engagement at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. And full disclosure, Syra was at the YCBA when I was the head of communications and marketing there. So I can personally vouch that Syra is genuinely a very nice person and lovely to work with. So. No, I see Nona has been able to join us. Thank you, Nona. I know you had a program uh, late last night, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But Nona, I had interviewed on WNHH in August 2017 about her art space exhibition, and it contained incredibly powerful work with some of the photos now in her book titled White Shoes, recently published by Mac Books. Nona depicts herself at sites of slave auctions and places where the slave trade was alive in New York. And in some of those photos, Nona is only wearing white high heels, thus the name of her book. Mac describes Nona's work as documenting where history becomes tangible. So to all of our distinguished guests, welcome. Let's start with Syrah, hello. So first off Syrah, What do you do as deputy director at the Guggenheim and director of education
2: and public outreach? That's a great question. (laughs) It's a very long combination of words. So in a nutshell, um, I think along with a really incredible team about how um, to create a conversation between uh, the artists, the artwork on view, the architecture of the Guggenheim, and things that are happening in in the everyday life of people who come in the front door. So we work uh, to produce public programs, lectures, talks, performances, uh, tours. We work closely with colleges and universities, internship programs, uh, and in partnership with many other types of educational institutions across the city and beyond um, to be sure that the Guggenheim is a place that is really investing in the future. Uh, and it has such a unique uh, effect on people to walk in the space. It's such a different kind of space. So I think a lot about that sort of uh, psychic and metaphysical space of convening uh, that's possible if if we activate it in the right way here.
1: Sounds a bit like what you did at the Yale Center for British Art in some ways. Can you describe how it resembles
2: your experience in New Haven and how it differs from it? Sure. Um, New Haven's university museums are really incredible assets in so many ways to so many people. They are um, uh, by design places of learning and meaning making because they're part of this broader entity, which is the university. But they're also some of the few um, publicly accessible and free to general public spaces that are part of you know, um, and so that kind of in, uh, meeting ground space where um, If you're sensitive to it, you can create a kind of welcome, a kind of safety, a kind of experience that's communal and collaborative. It doesn't happen automatically. And there are many, many, many hurdles to making that happen, I will say. Uh, uh, Two incredible architects, Louis Kahn, Frank Lloyd Wright, both had a very problematic idea about public space. I'll share (laughs) as an educator, which is the belief that sort of obscuring the entrance, making the entrance small, uh, would lead to the sense of awe and wonder when you come in the come, come through the threshold, which is true in both instances, but it's also very difficult uh, to make that connection between things that are happening in the outside world, again, physically and also conceptually, if people can't find you, don't feel comfortable in that threshold. So um, there are many similarities, but the Guggenheim is um, uh, a different kind of institution located in a different space in many ways. We have um, uh, many more institutions, art institutions around us. Um, and we also have the draw of New York City, The is actually one of two World Heritage sites in the city. It's the Guggenheim and the Statue of Liberty. Uh, so um, I think about, about many of the same things, but the, the scope and the scale and the, the chemistry of the pieces that come together are different here.
1: Sure. Now, I know your brother, Noah Bloom, who's now the executive director at the Neighborhood Music School in New Haven, and he's a really good person, too. And I interviewed him on WNHH About Jazz in a program that coincidentally was right before the program in which I interviewed Nona. So thinking about these connections, where is home for you, Syra,
2: and why? That is a big question. (laughs) And I have to answer it in a couple different ways. Uh, the first one is always New Haven. Uh, that is where my family is. That is uh, the place i spent the most amount of time in my life, 18 years, plus a couple of years probably coming and going. Um, and I'm still actually very connected to and committed to the cultural life of the city, thinking a lot about public humanities and, again, that intersection of the university and the broader city. and how we need to push against some of the um, barriers that exist to making those connections happen. Um, so that's one way to answer. Uh, the other way to answer is um, uh, where it's basically the same answer, where my people are. <laughs> so um, My people is in my immediate family uh, is in New York city and New York is a place I've also um, lived at various times in my life. And I have um, it, it's an incredibly stimulating place. It's an incredibly rich community of creative things happening. Um, and it's also, it can be exhausting. So um, I I find home in a way wherever I am, but but if it's a one single place, it is still New Haven for me.
1: So Nona, first off, is there some unifying essence that you want people to understand
0: from the art you create? Their unifying essence, yeah, that that one of empathy and one of humanity, um, and uh, the the you know the struggle that we all share um, of what it is like to be to be a human being um, on this earth at this time in the twenty first century but also um, to go on a deeper level, what it is like to be a woman and to be a Black woman.
1: I understand you grew up and went to school in New York. The Studio Museum of Harlem and Brooklyn Museum of Art have your work as part of their collections. Should I assume you consider New York home?
0: Of course, (laughs) but there are many places. uh, You know, one of the questions last night on the panel discussion at the Museum of City of New York regarding um their triennial home, it was where do where is home? and and I said, "Home is where my family is, which is Brooklyn, New York. But, there was also instances, you know, there. I, I consider North Carolina our ancestral home, and I definitely consider Africa my home, um, my ancestral home, especially um, having the opportunity to reconnect in 2020, uh, 2019 and 2021. I took trips there and discovered um, the DNA links to the specific tribes that my family came from.
1: How has the history that's embedded in your art affected your sense of home as a place of belonging, comfort, and security, but also a place of work and creativity?
0: Well, I mean, that's easy because, you know, I mean, growing up, being born and raised New Yorker, um, you know, there's this instant you know, uh, of course, connection and um, interest and, and connection to your identity that is formed as a New Yorker. And so um, all of that is in my my work. Um, the stories, the hidden histories, um, how intricately um, my identity is to, to New York and to those New Yorkers that came before me. Do you feel differently about
1: showing your work in different cities?
0: Actually, no, and I relish that. I love that because um, New York is such an old city. It's one of the original cities, New Amsterdam. And um, amazingly, a lot of Americans do not know Um, the history of New York or know a lot beyond the glitz, the lights, you know, the subways or the crime, you know, the sensationalist, you know, um, and to introduce them to this other world um, I love when my work travels around the country and internationally. And um, this year and last year, I got a lot of international press once the book came out. Um, and just to see the reaction, you know, from the French and the Italians, um, it, 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 it's it's it puts it on a whole nother level and meaning about the power of photography and 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 your these stories.
1: Now, Helen, what made ArtSpace so interesting is how the exhibitions frequently zeroed in on social issues. The Black Lives Matter movement dates back to 2013 with George Zimmerman's acquittal and his fatally shooting Trayvon Martin, but ArtSpace's Arresting Patterns exhibition about race and the criminal justice system was in 2015. That was well before the groundswell Black Lives Matters protests in 2020, following policeman, Eric Chauvin's murder of George Floyd. Did you anticipate the level of protests were on the edge of erupting?
3: Well, first of all, that show, which was in 2015, uh, of course had been in the planning for some time. Certainly um, uh, Michael Brown's death uh, and um, you know, the 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 tragic, the tragic way he died was a um a precipitator of, of the show. But I think we were mostly influenced by work that was done even before that by Michelle Alexander in the new Jim Crow. Um it was really, the show was really about uh, mass incarceration and um how, it had been um, just, you know, all the pol- all the drug policies and the um, criminal justice policies had been. Um, so detrimental to Black and Brown communities, and the way that the the that it was expressed visually was through um, an experience that the artist Titus Kaphar had had, and that he showed at the Studio Museum through a project that he called the Jerome Project. I don't know if you know this history, but um, at one point um, he and his father were. Um, were estranged, his father had um, had been incarcerated. He looked up his father's name in the criminal in a, in a federal registry, um, and he found ninety nine black men, all with the same first name, um, who had who were all incarcerated, and he created a series of portraits of these ninety nine men. Um, he dipped their um, their the the paintings in tar. And the amount of their face that was covered represented the amount of their life that they had been behind bars. And so you saw these ninety nine images of black men, um, some with almost all their faces covered. I mean it was it was a visual representation of these horrendous, this horrendous um, these horrendous statistics. And Titus, with the idea of, bringing that concept to New Haven, showing the work in New Haven, but also inviting other artists who were looking at the criminal justice system to participate. Um, And then while that was happening, Titus also ran an apprenticeship program um, similar similar in structure to the one that Nona had run, really, kind of sharing his methods, his methodologies, his techniques with with young people. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, Betsy, I think we were not at all surprised um, at uh, the, the response to George Floyd. I think it took a while for white America to know what, to understand what black America had known all along. And,
1: um, so, Helen, I'm just wondering, how do you get your finger on the pulse of meaningful art that will resonate with people?
3: Well, I think it's all about the artists. I, I feel so privileged to have the experience that art, you know, artists feel. And see things that um, that regular folks, um, you know, don't don't see. And it's their antennas, their antennas that are so sharply tuned to um, what's going on. And um, you know, I am so grateful to artists like Nona, um, like Titus. Um, we recently had the experience um working with Syrah of getting to know Nick Cave's work. Um, um Nick Nick Cave, his 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 work is up at the Guggenheim now um, for a few more weeks. And um just to see his response to the issues around. Um, uh, the the death of uh, you know the the murders of black men at the hands of the state and to to see how he has expressed it in ways that involve so many people. I, I hope Syra will get a chance to talk about the FI the way FIT students. Um, got involved with his um, his work, but I'm very proud of, of that kind of connection that um, can be made. Um, so just to say that um, I really feel even in moments like the moment that we're in where it's hard to know how to be and so there's so much turmoil in so many areas, I feel like it's we've got to look to artists for um, the future.
1: Saira, you've long focused on education. What do you think is the real role of art in education?
2: Um, I have a sort of personal vision, mission that guides the decisions that I make personally and professionally, and it's evolved over time. But the basic belief is that creativity is a birthright and that we have lost that notion in our culture at least and believe that it's something that belongs to specialists or that requires you to be good or not good at certain kind of uh like rendering skills right um and i think that's a tremendous loss of um some basic fundamental ways that we understand the world, understand ourselves, communicate with each other as people to to cut out that kind of visual communication. Um, And so what gets me up in the morning is the experiences I have when I see that open up for people. Um, And I spent a lot of my career working with educators, whether they're kindergarten teachers, faculty, um, and with students because It's actually not that hard to reopen that connection. It's so fundamental to us. Um, If you invite people to sit in front of an incredible work of art and describe it and respond to it with their body, respond to it in conversation, be aware of all those sensory perceptual uh, kind of awakening that they have, um, they realize all of a sudden that, yes, of course we all have this ability. You know we all can represent our experience. we all can talk about our experience through the visual, through the somatic, through our bodies. That is actually how we're wired to learn. So I think less about the role of art and education, I think more about um, the fundamental um, importance of creative practice to being human. And I think an art museum, if it's if it's closes down that process for people if it makes you feel isolated or if it makes you feel that you're not good enough to participate we're doing something wrong so but if you come in and you think and this this happened for sure within a cave exhibition i see myself in that work i see the visual imagery that i live with every day um, i see materials that i find in my world around me um, i can connect with it then we're doing something right
1: What do you think the role of art is in politics or action to change or shape society?
2: I think you could answer that a thousand different ways. (laughs) I'd be so interested to hear what the other panelists have to say, but I think I'd like to echo something Helen said, which is that kind of antenna that artists often have for um, seeing what's not yet in existence, for seeing that things could be different. Uh, for showing actually what that change looks like and what it would take to get there, for that kind of I, recently I'm obsessed with this idea of world building, right? The idea that um, whether you're a fiction writer or you're an artist, that you are actually like illustrating and creating a world in which the rules are different. If we don't have that, we don't have anything to work towards, and all we have is what we see in front of us. And I think as Nona said, that's very painful actually. Because what we have in front of us now doesn't work for most people. Uh, So I think it's fundamental, that kind of visioning process and that ability to show what it can be, to show what it is and to show what it can be in a way that makes it possible to move towards that thing. And I think that's in a way what Titus's project, the Jerome Project does, is it visually and viscerally illustrates something which you cannot miss. You know
1: when you see the work. So, Nana, what do you think is the role of art in terms of politics or changing society?
0: Um, well, I think specifically, artists do something incredible in which they are the mirror of society. They mirror society. Um, they they reflect uh, back the the ills, the joy, the sorrow, the problems of society. Um, specifically, I think artists are are really doctors, healers, and conjurers of of our culture, and what they do is so powerful in um, opening back the blinders, you know, and in the, in the screen, lifting the screen. Uh, uh, and reflecting on on our society in a myriad of different ways that um, make you, pers- per- can persuade you or not, but once it's done, it's like, aha, like that's another perspective I've never ever thought of, and I think that is something powerful, whether you would agree with it or not, once they show it to you, you can't forget it. And I think it's the one of the reasons why um, doctors and the medical profession are um, using art as, has used art as therapy um, and saying, you know, go to museums and and, and look at art as as healing, you know? So um, that's that's my answer to that question.
1: And your art is extremely well-researched and it educates, but now there's a threat and reality of banned books in schools with Florida receiving a great deal of attention calling ideas too woke. Do you feel that your art is threatened because it educates people about the true history of the United States that certain people don't wanna hear?
0: Oh, of course. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm right there. I'm I'm in that whole group. Um, and it's really a, it's sad and it's a shame because I think um, this history, first of all, it's not black, just black history. It's American history. And I think that uh two, it's vital that we know how we got to this point. And it's only looking back at our history in a truthful, honest way that we can understand, you know, what has happened to us and how it's happened and how to go forward and how to maybe even heal by evoking these difficult conversations. Um, no one is suggesting that small, small children be um taught. You know the um, how the ills of slavery and the, and the savagery of slavery, but just even now, you know, saying the word slavery or categorizing people as enslaved and saying that the United States had ens- uh, enslaved people is is a threat somehow, um, and and can't be said or discussed in textbooks, which is is just absurd. And so um, I think that one, it's it's this pushback that is faux outrage, basically, to the work that uh, artists, filmmakers, photographers, writers, you know, literature have been doing for about a couple of decades now, right? Um, uncovering these stories, this history, um questioning the tr- what is the truth. And um, I think this is this is what you're seeing is this pushback, this faux outrage, you know,
1: no, honestly, would you prefer to display your art where it's appreciated and understood? and is helping shaping the minds of people who are ready to accept it a little more beneficial or do you feel taking it where it would be least welcome could make a difference in another way
0: both both i mean um recently you know my work went up at the national portrait gallery in washington when trump was in office and uh you i never thought that that would happen and um, in no way would this administration have you know if they were to find out would have that uh piece of work from the white shoe series um, um view and then i thought Texas would never ever any institution in Texas would never have my work, which is the opposite of New York. Right. And it it and my work was up at the National, um, excuse me, the Museum of of Houston. Um, uh, I, I guess it's like a, a version of MoMA, but it's, it's a Houston, Houston Fine Art Museum. Right. And they actually just recently acquired a piece. So. That is actually an a great example of my work being in a place and uh, a state that has contested these this history and the teaching of this history or even any work around that. So um, I love when it evokes conversation, hard conversation. Um, I don't expect everyone to agree with me. And I think the the most progress comes when there is this contention or conversation because it evokes more uh, of a learning you know each each party gets something out of it yeah
1: so Helen and Syrah this one's for you how do you differentiate removal of art that offends people? For example, the Christopher Columbus statue, was, which was removed in Worcester Square in New Haven, and the Teddy Roosevelt equestrian statue that was removed at the Natural History Museum, versus banning books that some people claim offends their religious beliefs? Is this a false equivalency, or and why?
3: Ellen, do you want to start, and then or. Sure, you know I am. Um, it's 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 a complicated uh, question, and I think there there's a lot of nuance there. Um, you know, uh, works works out in public do um, uh, you know can evoke strong feelings. I guess personally, I am personally in the um, kind of I'm I'm not in the iconoclast camp um and i and i've actually been influenced by by nona's work and by titus's work in this regard which is let us not um let us not obliterate history let us not um forget what happened let us use these works as opportunities to learn and let us create new work to um, and put that work in dialogue with this older now problematic work. Um, I think it's sometimes unfair to judge past audiences and past um uh uh you know commissioners by today's standards um so so I I, I come with that with that point of view, but I think some of the most exciting, an interesting and a uh, way is to i mean nona puts her own body in front of problematic structures structures built with the labor of enslaved peoples titus um creates work that obliterates you know that um that adds to and that uh, changes um older older works where um And um, I think of an artist like Christoph Wodichko, who takes problematic sculptures and then projects, creates projections on them um, that uh, generate dialogue and consciousness raising. So I am more in the camp of how do we create new opportunities for learning out of these problematic structures. I have to say that one of the most um, extraordinary works that uh, that has come out of New Haven um, is a moment in time where the sculpture of Christopher Columbus was removed, was being removed. um, And a photographer, a gifted photographer in New Haven, whose name is Lee Busby, captured this moment of a crowd looking at the work being removed, it's a haunting photograph, and um, the, it has it's the thing that has stayed with me, um, you know, of of all the sort of iconoclastic um, kinds of activities. So um, that that's kind of my my uh, answer about about works, you know, banned books. I don't see in the same camp because a book is, you know, you choose you gravitate to the book, you pick it up. That is a personal choice. No one should be denied the opportunity to pick out a book, um, to read a book um, that exists out there. So that's, I I feel like it's a a little bit of a different different story.
2: (laughs) And Sarah, how about you? Yeah, it's an incredibly nuanced conversation, obviously. And I'd point people to a resource if they're interested in this, which is a project called Monuments Lab in Philadelphia, out of the university, uh, out of UPenn, and it is—it started as a project in Philadelphia to look at. Uh, first of all, let me qualify. I'm going to go back to something Helen said, which is the the um, choice as to whether to engage or not to engage with something, and the context around it is really important. This isn't a conversation just about an object, um, right? So. Monuments Lab began because a a couple of faculty in a school of art were interested in what is memorialized and who is memorialized in the city of Philadelphia. And they did a survey, right, and discovered that in public spaces, there was one black figure and it's a fictional figure. Right. Uh, um, And that if you think about the demographics of the city, the people who live in it, the cultural life, those kind of messages and nuance of visibility and invisibility that Jonah, Helen are talking about um, is so much about so much more than an art object, right? It's the the kind of cultural currency of who belongs where, and not just who belongs, but who is, where are people, right? It does not reflect the city, right? And so they created this project for artists to propose temporary monuments. Do different kinds of things. And there's many incredible artists, Pangulus, Thomas, many others who who were part of that project. It was so successful. And they used many, they used the public process, right? They had students from the university sit in a park with a questionnaire. What should be monumentalized in the city of Philadelphia? And then they gave that to artists, right? So it was this kind of public process. It wasn't just a series of select few deciding what everybody else should see. Um, it was so successful that cities all over the place and all over the world started to ask them to come to do it. And then with um, uh, the foresight, the Mellon Foundation commissioned them to do a national survey. And so there's a ton of, you know, really complicated and, um, but clear information for anybody who's interested in this that goes far beyond my own ability to describe uh, this sort of national or international picture. But I would say that, Specificity matters. Many of these monuments are um, commissions that you could question whether they were ever actually conceived of as works of art, right? They, um, I don't want to get into that whole conversation, but, that, but th- there's, that, that's what I'm saying. There's a, it, it's not um, an answer that comes easily. And I think there's a lot of different, there's a lot, we tend to use the same words and they mean different things to all of us. So I'd say to answer that question, we'd have to talk about what do we mean by art, what do we mean by public space, um, what do you know, what sense of agency or choice does one have, as Helen described in your um, ability to engage or ignore something, um, and you know, sort of reflecting a direct history of violence and harm to a group of people is not the same as um, feeling um, sort of offended
1: <laughs>
2: by someone else's story. I don't think those those are equal, equal. so um, I'll stop there.
1: Well, you're listening to Law, Life, and Culture on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. So Sarah, germane to this topic of art and home and sense of belonging, that weaves into our conversation. Now the Guggenheim, as you referenced, and um, as did uh, Helen, there's the display of uh, Nick Cave's For Other More" exhibition through April 10th. And I read it's about, quote, uh, creating space for those who feel marginalized by dominant society, end quote. So Syra, can you describe how does this exhibition do this?
2: Sure, and I have to say that I'm not the curator of the exhibition. That's Naomi Beckwith, and the show um, originated at the MCA Chicago, which is where Nick, which is the city that Nick calls home. And so um, I, I'm going to do a very quick pass at that, and then maybe talk a little bit more about the way that we've seen that exhibition as an opening and a portal at the Guggenheim. So um, Nick Nick Cave's work is um, this really complicated uh, combination of his own uh, sort of celebration of of, a visual aesthetic and personal history through objects. He and his partner, Bob, travel the country. They go to thrift stores, garage sales, et cetera, and they collect objects that resonate for them. And he has a very strong uh, uh, history and also it's become part of his practice to work with materials of everyday life in a sense um, and bring them together in a different kind of way, which as an educator allows us to say, your everyday life can be the stuff of creative practice. <clears throat> so for me, that's an incredible opportunity, again, to bridge those divides, which I think can happen in these fine art institutions. Um, he also has a history as a, uh, in fashion and he's head of the fashion department uh, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, he began making sound suits and please look them up if you've never seen them before, um, in, the, uh, uh, in the 90s as, he, uh, as a response to uh, police violence, right? And, and sort of instinctually began collecting objects. The first one is that, um, all of these small sticks that he actually got in the park outside where his office was. And he started to sort of as- assemble it into this object that was both um, a way to obscure and a way to be kind of present and physically put it on and then um, kind of recognize the sound and the sort of feeling of being um, again, visible and invisible at the same time. And he spoke he's, he's um, to a group of staff and to students and about his desire to put that practice to rest. There's no, those are not the only objects in the show. The show has um, um, older objects in his practice newer objects, and then the sound suits as well. But every time there's a, a killing of a Black person, uh, he needs to make another sound suit because it's a way that he responds to, memorializes, celebrates, um, kind of creates dialogue with this like in, impossible thing to conceive of and to live with. Um, so again, I don't want to, it, it's a complicated, wonderful show that people should come to see. And I, I won't be able to describe it in short terms, but that that gives you a taste of what the show is about. And um, as Helen mentioned, mm-hmm. Nick and his partner, Bob, are both educators at heart as well. And so um, we've had, you know, thousands of students uh, come through. We had this incredible moment where Nick and Bob worked with our high school students who come regular to the Guggenheim and a group of FIT students we had our high school students and the FIT students bring objects of clothing from their personal lives that they are interested in transforming and they gave them to the other person uh, to work. And so there's this kind of generational conversation about what, what they needed, what they wanted those objects to be. And then uh, Nick and Bob spent an hour and a half in a like truly transformational uh, session for all of us in the room, myself included, having each set of students feel visible, feel um, kind of valued for that process that they've gone they've gone through together, and just like the sort of um, total acceptance, love, and encouragement, and um, I feel honored to have been in the room for I needed it. I needed it as an educator, right? What we do is not usually the top of the heap in our institutions, right? And so I just kind of said that to to Nick and to Bob, and Bob looked me straight in the eye and said, What you do is the most important thing in the institution. So that gives you a sense of where they're coming from.
1: No, no, we've talked in the past about how incredibly brave you need to be for such honesty in your work and going to public places using nudity, which depicts both tremendous strength and vulnerability, is not something many people would frankly have the guts to do. Can you share with us how you summon the courage? Is it this conviction that you know what your final art is going to be? You have this confidence in yourself and belief in what you're doing and creating and saying is right? Yes, all of that.
0: <laughs> I don't think you could do it if if you didn't believe that. Um, and you know, it, it started from early on when I first conceived of the White Shoe series. Um, I it, it it terrified me a little. Um, to be that vulnerable to be on display um you know what the unknown what would happen but i believed in the project and what and my voice in it that i had to do it that it wouldn't go away and um either, even taking on the uh iconic monuments in my country as well um, just taking those uh, images, those those sculptures, gigantic sculptures of the Statue of Liberty and and uh, Lincoln and 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 the Washington Memorial, just tackling on all that history that is so near and dear to Americans, and how you don't tamper with that and to say, um, yeah, I am gonna tamper with that and I'm going to add some my own vision to that. Um, takes an incredible amount of, yeah, you have to be strong. You have to be, um, uh, know yourself, know your voice and believe in that. Um, and so, um, and, and I, I believed in it because I felt there, there was a, a missing conversation that we weren't having. You know, like in the White Shoes, it was about this, this history of slavery and, a change, and how enslaved people contributed to New York in a myriad of ways and how these people had never been truly acknowledged by, by the city and the government. Um, and, and so, yeah, it was it was it was that conversation that I I had to do personally as well um within that is paying paying homage to my own family history my own um family's lineage from in the Great Migration and the Transatlantic Slave Trade, um, even in in the stories of gentrification of my neighborhood and the neighborhoods of Brooklyn um, going on right at this moment um, that have been going on in in the past couple of decades, um, the face the changing face of New York City, um, and so all of these things just gave me the power and the conviction that I was on the right path. Um, and then there's this very deep um, so- sense of social justice that I have within me and, and, and within my work. Um, I champion anyone who fights for um. um, um democracy and freedom. I, I champion anyone who is oppressed um all around the world, as well as my own people. So um I think there was no other way for me to to go but this way. You know.
3: Okay. Can I um I have um Nona's work. I'm the proud owner of a work, the work that is actually on the cover of the book, and I just thought I would share it with the audience, um, but also because I want to express that your body, by putting your body in, that it is your body that lends the work, the power that it has, and um, um, so hang on, I'm just going to bring the piece.
0: Let's see if I can. Oh my God, that's so Um, beautiful.
3: If I can, I may have to go back a little bit, but- I'm just gonna hold it up for a quick second. It's a- That looks good, Helen. It's a large work um, and I cherish it. And and it does, I think in the long run, does belong in a museum, Um, but for right now, I uh, I get to look at it every day and um, and it is, a, you know, it is a, a reminder of many things, history and known as gifts. Um, Thank you for sharing that.
1: Now, Helen, this is for you and Syrah. People have standards of what they expect and want to see at the Guggenheim. That's a what a world-class museum offers. For example, I would be shocked to go to the Metropolitan Opera and hear someone singing out of tune. But with modern and contemporary art, is there ever a clash between a desire to have elements of intellectual appreciation that's not lowest common denominator versus wanting a big crowd pleaser that's going to draw in a large audience? Or, how do you deal with that? And have museums or galleries always differed from other type of art, such as movies and TV in this way? And is that good or bad? I guess, Syrah, I saw you nodding, so. <clears throat> yeah,
2: this is a super <clears throat> relevant and a live question all the time. And I, I wanna point to one example that's actually not from the Guggenheim. So in between the Yale Center for British Art and the Guggenheim, I worked at the Cleveland Museum of Art and was proud to live in Cleveland for four years. And um, our most popular show ever in the history of the institution was uh, Yaya Kusama's recent exhibition that traveled around the country and also through Canada and other places. Uh, this was just pre-pandemic. And I love this example, because if you were to say, what would bring in a relatively conservative Midwestern audience who's not particularly particularly engaged with contemporary art, to a kind of old-fashioned cyclopedic institution uh in the city of Cleveland, no one would say a conceptual Japanese artist in her eighties who did performance work, who uh, you know, I, you can go on describing who who Kusama is. Of course, there are many reasons why her work resonates right now uh for people, but I I I love that that proved to be the the case, right? That that work and that exhibition is what brought in the largest crowd we had ever seen. And I think it speaks to um, the fact that there are these kind of, again, to the kind of antenna that artists have, there are these like forces of energy, for lack of a better way to put it, that exist and that like touch us all in, in, They kind of connect with our own internal source of energy in ways that we can't always predict and that are not always fact or logic or data driven. And so I am interested in resonance. And if an artist or an artwork falls outside of the typical canon, but has a certain kind of resonance, especially if that resonance comes back to connection, belonging, and love, then I'm all for it. And we have, you know, real, we have real issues around the lack of public support for arts and arts institutions, actually large and small in the country. And I think we, um, we have to be real and pragmatic and transparent about that. I'm really interested in what the Brooklyn Museum has been doing as a strategy in recent times, which is unapologetically bringing popular exhibitions about, you know, from the fashion world. Forward and saying this is what's allowing us to do this deeper equity work within our community. Not the only thing that's allowing us to do that, but we don't apologize for the fact that we are both of these things at the same time. So to me, the answer is come out with it, be real, be honest, um, but be sure that. And I think the same way when I any donor that I work with, if I if I feel that they are truly committed to the thing we're trying to do, we can move forward together.
3: So Helen, how about you? And this question of no one wants to dummy down art, really? But well, I, I want to mention an exhibition that was not in a museum. Perhaps it should have been, but um it was an exhibition, a posthumous exhibition of an artist who had been in New Haven for many years of his life, whose name is Winfred Rembert. Winfred, it was a is a self-taught um, I mean, it's uh, you could call him a a black grandma Moses. Um, uh, a folk artist um, who learned, um, who was um, from the South, from Georgia, Cuthbert, Georgia, and um, who learned to make art by tooling leather. And that was a technique that he used while he was in jail um, in horrendous conditions. Um, And he had some success in his lifetime um, but um, not enough, really, to support his support his family. and um the um he he passed away, unfortunately, I think two two years ago. um, and I went, there's a, a gallery downtown next to the Whitney Museum, the Fort Gansevoort Gallery, that um, displayed a lot of his work. It was really a, a, a kind of first, an attempt to try to not only make additional meaning, but to really build a market for an appreciation for his work. And what they did around each um, painting was they had, they invited contemporary artists to um talk about what the work meant to them. And they um, invited all sorts of, you know, very well-known art world stars to comment on the work. So they created, um, and some of it, uh, you know, some were musicians and some were visual artists, um, poets. um, And it just created a circle of care around this artist's work. And I think created, put put him in a much wider dialogue. It was really, I was very taken to read um, the impact that this artist's work had on these various individuals who were better known than he was. And so that was a great service, I think, that the gallery did to organize that. And perhaps that's something that um, institutions like the Guggenheim and others can do to make a kind of bridge between um, uh, maybe newer work or lesser known work or underappreciated work and um and and audiences. So
1: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time now. So thank you so much, Nona Faustine, Cyra Levinson, and Helen Cowder. We loved having you on WNHH 103.5 FM's Law, Life, and Culture. I'm Betsy Kim.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Betsy, for having us. Thank
0: you, Helen and Nona. To all